a conclusion here in these last two verses that Christians should have an ever-increasing knowledge of their calling, inheritance, and God's great power. And we saw that the first part is that they, Paul had heard about their faith and their love. There they are. Uh, there Paul is uh, in prison. And information traveled from Ephesus all the way to his prison cell. And he hears about that these believers have faith and they have love. And, and uh, not only that, but uh, he has this prayer for them, and that prayer is that God will give them wisdom and revelation of himself. To give wisdom and revelation, we saw that in verses 16 and 17. Now, uh, the Spirit, God's Holy Spirit, that he's the one that gives this wisdom. Yeah, he's the one that gives this revelation. While there could be an, an intellectual spirit uh, uh, that has a bent towards wisdom, you don't see anything in the scriptures that a person has a, an intellectual bent towards revelation, like a person has a, a spiritual gifting towards revelation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 6 through 16, it talks about how uh, it's the spirit that, that shows the deep things of God. It's, it's the spirit that unless the spirit works, people don't know God. In fact, uh, if you read chapter 1, there is a human knowledge, human wisdom, and uh, they, they see everything that God does as something as foolish. In fact, they look at the cross and they say, that's foolishness, and they, they don't like it. Uh, but God, God, the Holy Spirit, he's the one that gives this revelation and he gives this uh, wisdom. Now, as we looked at that, there was a point where we saw that uh, there's um, a natural way of gaining wisdom and revelation, uh, wisdom and knowledge, and that's through reading God's word. Uh, God uses that natural method with the spirit so that the person knows, uh, which requires that a person makes an investment of time to get to know God more intimately through his word. It, it's absurd to think that you're going to go all week long and come to one Sunday service, a uh, Sunday morning, and somehow get out of the next 45 minutes uh, a sermon that's just going to last you all until next week, or, or maybe a couple weeks, or three weeks, and then you come back again. It, it's not enough. A person has to be spending time daily in God's work, meditating. God uses, the Spirit uses His Word to bring uh, information to our minds so that we can know God in a more intimate way. Now, there was a, an aspect that there, there are things that prevent us from knowing God more intimately. And that is, if a person is living in sin, they, they, their eyes are darkened. They, they can't see. And I use the illustration of when I was uh, with uh, my grandparents and my grandfather's sister. We were in the Cueva Guacharo. And if you remember, the, the cave was a really big cave. And uh, there's all these bats that fly around, and unfortunately those bats were never trained to go to the restroom, and they went to the restroom everywhere. And uh, as we were going, we were deep in the cave, and my grandfather's sister uh, put her hand on some rock, and, and her hand was... You can imagine what her hand was. Uh, <clears throat> what I didn't share was that... Uh, it, it, it started making her gag 
uh, you could hear, it was dark, you couldn't see anything, but you could hear the, oh, you know, the, the gagging sound, right? And, um, and of course, uh, there was not a gentleman there because we were all kind of getting away from the gagging sound, you know? <laughs> we didn't want to be a, 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 a napkin for her. And so, uh, um, the, the, um, it, we should have been more gentlemen, but we're waiting for the other person to be the, the gentleman, right? Uh, but had she been able to see, she had never stuck her hand in that. I mean, never. And, and there's an aspect that when we sin, it, it, it darkens our understanding. And one bad decision leads to another bad decision, leads to another bad decision. And before you know it, you are just, as the prodigal son, in just this mess eating with the pigs. God gives light, and, and there's an aspect that sin prevents this true knowledge. And so we must pursue uh, the normal way of wisdom and knowledge, which is um, by, by reading, getting to know God. Now, as we look at that, we see the last couple of verses, which is 18 and 19. And Paul has this prayer for them. And uh, this prayer of wisdom and revelation that will be demonstrated in a certain way. He says, uh, verse 18, And I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. That, that word enlightened uh, has the idea of have been given light. Uh, having been given light. It, it, it's a perfect, if you're looking at the at, at the tense, it's a perfect, which means it's something that has happened in the past, but continues to have an impact even, even now to the point that Paul is writing them. They, they have received a light, and it continues to be in them. It's not that it went away. They, they had this light, it was given to them, and now it, they continue to have it. And, and this light is this, uh, is this idea of making something known. It, it's... Uh, being able to understand something. It's not, it's not just being able to see, but being able to understand it as, for example, a dentist. A dentist will have you with their mouth and they'll shine a light. It's not just to see the cavity and be like, oh, yeah, you got a cavity, you know. All right, go home now. Uh, but rather, the light is in there so that they can do what they need to do. This, this enlightening is not just to understand your situation, but to understand and know what you need to do to, to change. Now, it, uh, it has a very interesting thing that it talks about because what, what's being enlightened here is, is the eyes. The eyes. The eyes are being enlightened. And uh, it's an interesting metaphor. We can understand that eyes being enlightened. You need light to be able to see. If things are too dim, you're not going to be able to, to see correctly. Um, I've always seen at these fancy restaurants, you know, when they do the... Uh, cooking shows and so forth, they go into these fancy restaurants and they're always dark. And you wonder, why is it dark? You know, they don't want you to see the price, right? Uh, they don't want you to just leave. But light helps you to see what's going on there. But this is, this is a very interesting thing. It's not just your eyes having light, but, but specifically it's the eyes of your heart. Now, how many has seen a, a human heart? How many have seen a human? I'm not talking about one of the Valentine's heart, but a, a human heart. All right, we got a couple of people. Uh, how many eyes are on the human heart? Are there two or are there three? How many are there? What in the world is this talking about? Eyes of the heart. 
what, what does the eyes of the heart look like? What, what are they looking at? The rib cage? Looking at your intestine? What are they looking at when it's beating there? Can they even focus as it's beating and they're trying to stare? What is this? What, what does this mean? If you were to do a word search for eyes, you would see that eyes appear many times. If you look for heart, heart appears a bunch of times. But eyes of the heart appears once, and it's right here. What in the world is the eyes of the heart? And it's, it's kind of disturbing a little bit to think about that your heart has eyes. What in the world is this talking about? Well, we know from, from Jesus where he was talking in Matthew chapter 6, verse 22, the importance of, of the eye. And he talked about how the eye is, is the lamp of the body. So that if the eye is dark, the whole body is dark. So he's using it metaphorically uh, to talk about uh, something that uh, you have a desire for, your eyes will gravitate towards whatever you're looking at. Uh, some people, they, they love they love sales. Maybe five miles away, and they'll see the for sale, uh, sale signs way over there. You're like, how do you see that? And they're like, there's a sale over there. There are some people that, that love cars. Whatever route they're going to drive, for somehow, somehow they know how to drive past all the car lots. I don't know how they do it, but they go past all the, and they're looking at all the cars. Huh, hmm, inventory's low. Hmm, what does that mean? They, they, their desire motivates what they look at. Now, heart. What is the heart? Well, there's a couple different texts that mention heart and using it metaphorically. We're not talking about a physical heart. Metaphorically, Jesus said that um, the pure in heart are blessed in Matthew 5, verse 8. Uh, John recorded that uh, Satan put a desire in Judas' heart in John chapter 13, verse 2. And uh, that desire that was in Judas' heart manifested itself through actions that were uh, betraying Jesus, it, which is kind of interesting that what is in the person's heart ends up manifesting itself in actions. And so whatever is in a person's heart will come out. Uh, why do you do what you do? Because you want what you want. And because you want what you want, you'll do what you do, it, we see in uh, Acts chapter 5, verse 3 and 4, that Peter confronted Ananias uh, because he let Satan fill his heart to lie. You remember, he, he had the ability to sell his property and give whatever amount of that he wanted to, and he came and, and presented it as if he had given the whole thing, and he tried to lie. So there he has this, thing going on in his heart, and it manifests itself in the words that were spoken in what they were trying to portray towards the people there at the temple. What's in your heart comes out into your actions. Luke records Paul when he's preaching in Philippi. He's preaching the gospel in Philippi in Acts chapter 16, and there's a certain Lydia, and she's hearing the gospel, and hearing the gospel the Holy Spirit opens her heart and she accepts. Not only does she accept, but she gets baptized and she opens her home to take in uh, the, the apostle, Paul. So it's interesting that what's happening in your heart ends up affecting how you act, how you interact with others, whether it's betraying, whether it's lying, or whether it's being hospitable. Whatever's going on in your heart ends up manifesting itself. 
Paul used the word heart five other times in, in Ephesians. And um, it carries a, an important theme in this, this short letter. Now, we saw eyes and we saw heart. But what does the heart, the eyes and the heart have to do with one another? Uh, the idea is the eyes of the heart, it, it's, it's what your desires look towards. It's what your desire, what you want is, is looking at. There are many people that live very blind lives because their heart only desires earthly things. And all they see is what they can see with their eyes. Their heart does not long for anything spiritual. You know, they, they can't see God as glorious. They, they don't understand why somebody would worship God. Why, why would you worship? can't even see Him. People sometimes just live for what they can actually see with their physical eyes. He wants them to be enlightened. He wants the, the, their eyes of their heart to be enlightened, to have light so that they can see three things. And those three things, two are found in verse 18, and the third is found in verse 19. He says, um, so that, for this, for this purpose, this, this result, uh, the result of having their eyes enlightened is for this, uh, that you will know what is the hope of his calling. You'll know what is the hope of his calling. Uh, to know has this intimate, to be intimately acquainted with something. So it's not just understanding a fact, but it's being acquainted intimately with it. He wants them to know, and what he wants them to know is the hope of his calling. And it's call, it's um, this hope anticipates something future, something that is about to happen. We have hope in the gospel. We have faith in the gospel. And that hope is that at the moment that we die, we'll be in the presence of the Lord. Now, it's a hope because that's not at right now, is it? Right now we're here. But we are hoping and we are praying, and even up to that moment of that last breath, of that last little uh, signal that the brain gives, at that last heartbeat, it's all faith and hope until it stops, and then all of a sudden it moves from faith and hope to a reality. You're in the presence of the Lord. But the whole time it's, it's waiting and longing and putting your faith in God. And it's the hope of his calling. It, it's, it's, it's his call. It's an interesting word that has this idea of an invitation for a special privilege and responsibility. Not or responsibility, but and. It, it has both aspects of a special privilege and a responsibility. It, it's used in Ephesians over in chapter 4, verse 1, where it says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. That calling, the first one, is the same noun. Uh, it's the call uh, that he has given. It's this, it involves a special privilege and responsibility. The privilege of being called 
is to be an adopted son. The responsibility of the call is how you're supposed to be walking. Four, five, and six. It talks about how you're supposed to be walking because of this call. Now, as we look at this, this call is not a general call, like some, like if the universe was calling out or something like that. It's, it's not like that. It's very specific because it's his call. His call towards the person who has, who has believed. He has made this call. So what is this hope of this call? That we are chosen by God to be adopted, which means that God is our father uh, of those who are saved. Now, another thing that's interesting about this is that if um, God is the father of the Lord Jesus, as it says in verse 3, and God is our father through adoption, it makes a, a brotherhood, per se, with Jesus Christ. This calling. And this God the Spirit has sealed. So this calling involves the Trinity in the person's life. And it's, they have heard it, as it says in verse 13, and they believed, and therefore were sealed. So this calling has God initiating the, the activity. Man wasn't seeking God. God initiates before the foundation of the world. He chose and the individuals, they hear the gospel and they believe. This calling that he's done. Now, not only is there this calling, but there is the, the next thing that we see in verse 18, so that you know the, uh, the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Uh, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance? Uh, the word riches could better be translated wealth. Sometimes we think riches only in terms of monetary riches. Wealth, it can involve a lot more stuff, uh, not, not just finances, but a whole bunch of other things. A person can be wealthy and it involves health and, and many, many other things. Uh, it, that's the idea here. It's not just finances, but it's a much more broad term. And this... This broad term is, as it says here in verse 18, the inheritance in the saints. So th this is really interesting because it's, it has the idea of with the saints. It's uh, a possessive. God, his riches of his inheritance are those who are believers, those who have been called. Now, now this is an incredible thing to think about. Uh, you can think about uh, those movies where uh, they've got the handsome man or the beautiful girl, and then they've got the, the ugly guy or the ugly girl, and the beautiful woman or the handsome man takes an interest in the, the ugly one. They're like, hey, you know, and they're like, me? I can't believe. That, that's the idea that's being presented here. Because God is calling the saints the riches of his glory in his inheritance. Us? A glorious inheritance? Us? But, but we're sinners. We're rebellious against God. Given the opportunity, we'll choose to sin twice on Sunday especially if no one will find out. Yet God considers us 
his inheritance. <laughs> what inheritance are we? Can you imagine? Someone said, uh, Fred Wiesen says, I leave you North Oaks Baptist Church. Here you go. Really? Us? His inheritance? Yet God somehow values us. That is an amazing thing to think about. And then the, the third is found in verse 19. And what is the surpassing greatness? That uh, surpassing, uh, the outdoing greatness. It's to, to throw beyond, to overshoot. It's the idea of, of think of the biggest building that you can think of. And then think of one a little bit bigger. Or think of a, a monetary amount. The, the biggest monetary amount that you can think of. And then think of one a little bit more than that. that that's this idea of the, the surpassing greatness. And it's the surpassing greatness of his power. So think about the thing that's, that's most powerful. What, what could it be? Maybe an atomic bomb or, or something like that. And think about it multiplied even greater, this amount of power. Now, what, what is this power being used for? Well, it says, toward us. Us who? Who believe. It's the same word that's being used in verse 13, who uh, having also believed. Those who believed. Well, what type of power is needed for those who believe? I mean, we're all pretty good people, right? I mean, how much power is needed? Huh. Incredible amount of power. Uh, the power to transform a nasty, wretched sinner, dead in their trespasses of sin, to be an adopted son, daughter, holy and blameless before the Lord. Huh. How much power is required for that? A surpassing greatness of power is what's required. That's the type of power that's required to change that state from a person that's alienated from God, has the wrath of God on them, to being their adopted son, daughter. It requires a tremendous amount of power. And he has used that. These are, what is these? The power that's, that's used, the surpassing greatness of his power in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. His might is being used, all his power is being used for this purpose, for those who believe. That is an amazing thing to think about, that God would use that. Now, as we think about this, that the Spirit enlightens the called, the Spirit enlightens the called, there's a couple ways that we could kind of apply this a little bit. The first is that faith and love is not enough. Verse 15 started off with, with Paul is in prison and he's hearing about the Ephesian believers way over there. He hears, maybe through their Twitter account or whatever, about their faith that they have and their love that they have. And, and he's writing to them and he tells them, I've heard this. And yet somehow he's not satisfied with them having a life that demonstrates faith and love. That, that doesn't suffice for him because he has a prayer that he wants to see something else. He wants their eyes to be, the eyes of their heart to be enlightened. It's not enough. 
It's a shame many Christians live their whole life with just this very vague idea of a faith. You ask them, can you share how you got saved? Can you share your testimony? They ramble on and, and kind of go through stuff about walking forward and, and they, they say something about the person and they say something else and, and you're listening and you're like, does this person even know in what their faith is resting? Do they know who they're believing in? Do they understand the work that was done in their, on their behalf as a substitute? It's, it's a vague. And then they, every once in a while, will, will do some nice stuff. And so that's, that's their faith and their love. And they, they try to show that off. Paul's not, not satisfied with that. It, it, he wants them to have a deeper understanding of God. That the, the eyes of their heart be enlightened. Faith and love is not enough if it doesn't take you to a deeper understanding of who God is. And Paul wants them to, to know God even more. Now, not just faith and love is not enough, but God uses His Spirit and His Word to give you knowledge of His work. He uses His Spirit and His Word to give you knowledge of His work. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 6-16, through 16, Paul is writing the believers there. Now, Corinth was a city that was very proudful in the fact that they were very wise. And yet he kind of knocks them down a little bit and says, look, even God's foolishness is much higher than your wisdom. If God could be foolish, if God could be foolish, it's so much higher than, than your wisdom. And then he talks about the God has chosen the cross. Well, people despise the cross. Who wants to live a cross-centered life? Nobody does. The, the cross represents shame. The cross represents a, a lack of rights. The, the cross represents ridicule. We do everything to not be ridiculed. We do everything to avoid shame and suffering and pain. We, we don't want that. Therefore, we tend not to want the cross-centered life. But then Paul goes into talking about that no one can know God, the mind of God, except the Spirit of God. And it's the Spirit of God who reveals Him. It's the Spirit who knows Him intimately and, um, and gives Him this knowledge so that they can have the mind of Christ, as it says in 1 Corinthians 2.16. Having the mind of Christ comes through the work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. It doesn't occur in a vacuum. It occurs through knowing God's Word. First, uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. It's, it's through this inspired Word that the person is made perfect. The Spirit who inspired this Word works with this Word in the believer's life to transform them, to make them someone perfect. The other thing we see from these verses is that the world really needs an enlightened knowledge of God. There are many people that are searching for love. There's many individuals who are searching for identity. They're looking for value. Are they valued? 
and they're looking for security. If there's anything that you've seen on the news, is that this is getting represented. People want to know that they are loved, that they have an identity, that they're valued, and they want a sense of security. What Paul prays for them to know gives those things. God loves and gives you your identity. Well, what is the hope of your calling? He wants them to understand the hope of your calling. The hope of their calling is that God chose them, verse 4, and he chose them in love. God loved them. It was a free choice on his part, and he loved and he chose. Way before the foundation of the world, he chose them. Verse 5 and 11, God predestined for adoption through Jesus. He loves, loves to the point that he adopted. And that becomes the identity of the person. They're no longer just this individual. They are an adopted son or daughter of God. That's their identity. It, it comes from a calling that gives a special privilege, but also responsibility on how to live. God redeemed you for the praise of his glory. It shows a love that God has for you. Not only does God love and give you an identity, but God values you. He does. He values. It says, what are the riches of his inheritance? And the question is, what is it? We, we live in tough situations with tough relationships. Husbands are left by wives. Wives leave husbands. Of course, if you were the one that was left, it was a no-brainer that the person was crazy. How, how could they do that? that? That's an obvious thing. But, but, when the night is really, really quiet, a question comes to mind. Was I not enough? Was I not lovable? I mean, obviously, they were the crazy one for leaving, but that idea comes to mind, that question comes to mind. Was I not enough that they had to go to somebody else? Was I not lovable? P parents leave kids. Obviously, a parent that leaves a kid is, is the crazy one, but still there's that kid that is there, and the night is really quiet, it's really dark, haven't drifted off to sleep yet, and there the question is, was I broken in some way? Was there something messed up in me that I got left? Do I not really have a value that uh, he took off and he's with this other person and they have a whole bunch of kids and everything and, and I'm just left here? Do I not have value? I mean, obviously the person's crazy for doing that, but still, the question comes to mind. Or maybe your boss lets you go. <laughs> Obviously, the boss was crazy for letting you go. I mean, that's a no-brainer. But Billy Bob is still working there. Billy Bob clocks in eight hours, but he goes between the water fountain and the bathroom for eight hours. And he's still working there. But you've been fired. 
And you have to wonder, like right before drifting to sleep, did I not add value to the company at all? How is it that my coworker that goes between the water fountain and the bathroom adds value to the company, yet I don't? And those thoughts might go through a person's brain. In fact, this type of thinking leads to a downward spiral where it gets just darker and darker as you descend, thinking and contemplating these questions. But if the eyes of your heart are enlightened, you understand that God values you very much. You understand that God sees you as an inheritance, as an inheritance, as something worth having and keeping and and acquiring and wanting. You can be left by all the husbands of the world, all the wives of the world, all the parents of the world. You can be fired from every job. But if you understand that God values you as an inheritance, that is where value comes. That is a true identity. God gives the believer security. We live in crazy, crazy times. It's caused some people to think that maybe if the government was having a little bit more control of prices, things would be better. Maybe if there was something like a a socialism where prices were set for food, I wouldn't have to worry about getting to the end of the month and not having any food. Or maybe if the government somehow set a standard for gas prices, I wouldn't have to worry if I'm going to be able to drive to work. So maybe there would be more security if the government took control of things just a little bit more than just leaving things as they are. Others might think, no, it's not government that needs to do that. We need to make companies responsible. They they need to be shown that they cannot just be paying people different salaries. Everybody needs to get equal amounts of pay, equal amounts of benefits, equal amounts of time off. Everybody needs the same. It's the, the company's problems that they're not paying people correctly. And maybe there'll be security there. Of course, the parents, what do the parents say? Son, daughter, if you want security in your life, what do you have to do? You know, you know what it is. You got to go to college. You got to go to a good college. And and you got to get a good degree so that you can get a good job and that way you can be secure. Right? No, don't look at me like you've never said that. Like you've never encouraged your kids that you need to have security. And these grades are not going to bring security. Where is their security? Security is found in God in the surpassing greatness of his power. That is where security lies. See, all this world can crumble, and it will, but God will still stand. Those who put their faith in God don't go around anxious, wondering what's going to happen because he is working things out according to the surpassing greatness of his power and the working of his strength and his might. Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 8, verse 28 through 39. And he talks about, uh, 
It says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these who he justified, he also glorified. He goes on to say, what can separate you from the love of God? He gives a whole list of scenarios that maybe none of them can. Where is their true security? It's found in God. It's not found in, in government reform. It's not found in, in company reform. And believe it or not, it's not found in going to a good college and finding a good job and having security. True security comes from God, who works according to the surpassing greatness of his power. Now, Christians should have an ever-increasing knowledge of their calling and inheritance in God's great power. That's what should happen, but the question is, is that what's happening in your life? Sunday morning is not enough opportunity for that. Even if you came Sunday morning, Sunday school, Sunday evening, Wednesday, it's not enough. You must spend time getting to know God intimately. Maybe you don't know this God because you've never put faith in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You've never had that experience of having this light because you've never trusted. You don't understand. I would encourage you today to to understand that you are a sinner and your sin separates you from God. In fact, you can try as hard as you want to get closer to God and all I will do is put you further away from Him. But if you believe in that Jesus died on the cross for you, in your place, as your substitute, He appeased God's wrath for you and you accept His sacrifice, you'll be saved. You'll go from being dead in your trespasses of sin to having life, everlasting life. And then being able to have a relationship with God where you know him more and more. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here that's never trusted Christ as their Savior, I pray that they won't try to ignore this. I pray that they won't try to think that they'll work harder. But Father, I pray that today that they'll repent. Father, I pray also for those who are saved. They've been having just a faith in love, but they haven't had an increasing knowledge of you. I pray, Father, that today that the Spirit would work in their lives and they will seek you more closely. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.